beef prices, like all food prices, have increased as the inflationary story in the marketplace continues to unfold. Thus far, consumers haven't balked at paying higher prices for their favorite center of plate protein, but how long can that demand hold out? And what is the outlook for the cattle producer as feed costs escalate too? Welcome to Feedstuffs In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us today. This episode is sponsored by Novus International Incorporated, a leader in poultry, dairy, and swine nutrition solutions driven by science. Novus's products and services look at the whole animal, focusing on productivity and well-being in order to feed the world affordable and wholesome food. For more information, visit the Novus website at novusint.com. Don Close is an agricultural economist and senior animal protein analyst with Rabobank's food and agribusiness research team. He recently released a report on the beef supply in what he described as a post-COVID world, discussing a series of challenges facing the beef supply chain in the coming year. I talked with Don earlier this week about those challenges and how beef demand has remained so resilient in the face of inflation, the likes of which we haven't seen in more than a generation. Don, when I look at the marketplace for beef and the U.S. cattle segment, whether we be talking about domestic, whether we be talking about international, the one thing that has continued to, I, I guess on some level, surprise me, given all the discussion about inflation and the cost of everything in our society today is that beef demand has remained extremely robust. Am, am I reading that correctly? Is beef demand as good as, as it seems to be for, for this uh, layman? When you actually look at the data, does the data support that perception? It absolutely does support it. I think your assessment is, is dead on track that uh, this, this demand has been nothing short of phenomenal. When you look at all of the headwinds, and I, you know, the thing that I think is the reason it surprised me so much is just inflation conversations are everywhere. Every every story you seem to get, whether it's from the Times or the Post or uh, our, our own trade publications or whatnot, it's we're all acutely aware the cost of everything is is through the roof. Uh, how, how is it the customers haven't flinched yet about going to the meat case or going out and we just had valentine's day so going out with your sweetheart for a steak dinner uh how is it that they're not crying uncle yet and has that surprised you that they haven't at this stage yes it has i think the thing we need to to look at is it goes all the way back to early on in COVID, and if you take all of the stimulus money that was pumped into the to to consumers and the real driver there was the the number of people who continued full employment but were working from home. So we weren't buying gasoline to get to and from work. There was no entertainment outside of the home. You know, at that time, if we were eating out, it was takeout. There was no tra- uh, casual travel. That enabled that that personal savings rate. Uh, to go to unprecedented levels. And and that generated the cash that is not only a driver in the whole inflation story, but it's still providing that cash that hasn't prevented consumers from participating uh, and buying what they want. Yeah, I think that part of the story is interesting, especially as we get into this, what, what you described as a post-COVID world in a recent report you wrote 
as part of the Rabobank, Rabo Research Food and Agribusiness team. I was reading through that report and looking at some of the factors that you've identified, the, the major issues that are driving what you call a fundamental supply, uh, fundamental change in the beef supply chain. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to hone in on this. Okay. When you look at this just-in-time delivery model, and, and the beef industry certainly isn't the only one, feels like any of our supply chains, you know, we've all kind of over the last 40 years embraced the the Honda Toyota sort of method. We've all been to biz school and set through those case studies, and this is how yep. we have to orient industry. This pandemic's really kind of flipped that on its head in a lot of ways. What do you see changing or or lasting changes coming out of the supply chain disruptions that two years into COVID we're still dealing with? The two things that that I pulled out of it was, A, how do we manage the increased cost and and where how does that increased cost uh, fit into that uh, price spread or price relationship between a live steer and cutout values or the live steer to re- <coughs> excuse me to retail prices uh, it's going to change that relationship the other thing that i was pulling out of it is you know largely just the the nature and characteristics of a commodity market but to the way the cards fell on this one that really the the burden of the shutdown of business fell on the shoulders of cattle producers. And like I say, a lot of that's just inherent with the commodity market. But I was really trying to think about ways of, okay, how can we assure we don't run the risk of empty store shelves again? And what do we need to do to extend the shelf life of product to to build a, a supply of inventory uh, for that just in case and and then what were the what are who whose burden should that be and what are the costs associated with it that we cannot sell to consumers what's not offered in the case one of the pieces of this puzzle that again has gotten quite a lot of press but i think is worth discussing a little more is the supply chain on the logistics side of things transportation headaches mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of conversations at the recent NCBA meeting, as I'm, I'm sure you did as well as one of the speakers there. I was talking with somebody in the meat space, and they were talking about, you know, they had a, literally a couple truckloads of, of beef leaving a slaughter plant and going into processing, and the drivers uh, apparently just left the truck at the truck stop, just walked off the job, said, heck with it, I'm done. Uh, how, how big a crisis is the transportation, logistics, trucking. We could be talking, of course, about containers and the ports, which we've done quite a bit. But how, how big a crisis is that right now from what you're seeing and hearing in your conversations? It's huge. With the the research that I did for, for the report and looking at uh, material from the American Truckers Association, they're estimating that we currently have a, a shortage of drivers of basically 68,000 or just over. And they're projecting that because of the lack of new drivers coming into the system and retiring out of older drivers, that within five years, we could have a shortfall of as many as a million drivers. So I think it's a very real problem, and it's not just a short-term problem. I think it's one that's going to be with us a while. The other thing that kind of puzzles me about this, like, and I should say, you know, my my bias here is that my dad spent 
probably 20 years in the cab of a big truck. Now he's <laughs> hauling John Deere farm equipment and, and not, uh, you know, chilled beef or something along those lines, not hauling cattle. But uh, I, on the one hand, always marveled. And I would say to dad, God, I don't know how you do it with all the idiots out there on the roadways. But the other side of it is, you know, these are good paying jobs pretty typically. So what's the, what's the tipping point there? Why are, why the shortfall? Is it, is the simple answer that, gosh, it's hard to get a CDL these days and getting harder? Is it, uh, people these days don't want that sort of lifestyle of living in the truck five, five nights at a time. What, what are you hearing as you're working through the scope of this, what the solution is, if there is one? I think we're still in, in discovery for a full solution. I think one of the one of the the uh, drivers, <laughs> so pun, pun, pun not necessarily pun intended, intended, but accepted. <laughs> but uh, but as more and more opportunities have been presented to CDL drivers to have short hauls with all of this explosion of of home delivery, mm. I think a lot of them have been able to find a job using their skill sets and still be at home five nights a week opposed to being out on the road. So I think that's been a big drag on, on the number of drivers. Um, I think you, you mentioned the, the added uh, issues or, or requirements to get the CDL. I think too, the, as the whole system supply chain system melted down, and certainly an issue that come up if you look into the uh, the port situation is, you know, a lot of those guys were, are majority of them are independent uh, truckers. Mm-hmm. And th- when things were working well, they could do, you know, let's say uh, four to six turnarounds a day of picking up that container and taking it uh, to the, to a nearby dock. But as the, as the system slowed down, their their time in line waiting to get into uh, that port slowed, so now they're only able to do one to two uh, turnarounds a day. It simply wasn't paying for them, so I, I think that's a that's a driver a, a consideration in this as well. Yeah, that's a a good point, and and I've heard Dad say more than once he's glad he's not out there. He's, he's glad he's on the other side of retirement. Uh, looking at some of the other major issues that you outlined in in the report one that i thought was interesting was your discussion of automation versus labor so transitioning from having a hard time finding truck drivers to having a hard time finding people in other segments of the beef value chain is is covid and and this lingering issue of everybody having help wanted signs in the window pushing automation further harder what kind of innovation do you expect to see coming out of this experience? I don't think the the shortage of of labor, I don't think there's any question that just the shortage of availability of labor, uh, the escalated cost of the labor that you do have is is aggressively uh, pushing this this transition to automation. From the conversations I had, the research that I did, I think our mental picture, particularly in, in meat processing, was that we just automatically go to robotics and, you know, on the broilers, I think that's more feasible than the size of, of the carcass and the consistency, uh, even more doable with pork, but to beef, there's still the size of that animal and the, 
the variation, it's, it's still a real set of challenges. So what we're talking about is a, a tremendous more amount of, of monitoring the system, monitoring product flow, uh, monitoring the equipment. So they will be able to get information back to a maintenance crew that, hey, instead of waiting for a conveyor, a bearing in a conveyor belt to go out, that, hey, you need to be watching uh, the bearings on that conveyor belt because they're likely to be the next thing to go down. In short, I think it is a first step towards robotics, but I think the interim is it's not necessarily going to replace labor but it's going to be interventions that enable labor to be much more efficient. Yeah, that, that's the kind of, you know, generally when you have a, a crisis or, or some sort of pressure, that tends to drive innovation, right? Necessity mm -hmm. being the mother of invention. And you would expect this one to have quite a lot of, of push in that space. Looking you know, over... one, one interesting thing on the driver, to, to keep using that term, uh, but... Uh, through this whole crisis and the awakening that came with the threat of empty store shelves, we've had a number of firms and, and researchers reach out to us and throughout industry, but you've got a lot of IT and, and technical design people, uh, you know, the MIT group, uh, but a lot of, a lot of high tech people that really the meat industry wasn't even on their radar screen before this calamity that are now looking at developing automation and implementations to to support the system. So I think the one of the might might be a hidden benefit, but it it's brought the attention of a, of an industry that before was just to, almost totally under the radar. As you and I were recording this, uh, right before you and I went uh, into the studio, I, I was observing on one of my social media feeds a conversation among among friends uh, in in Ohio. We're talking about uh, shortages on grocery store shelves and whether you know, asking whether different people in different parts of the state or country were were seeing that. And one retailer, this particular uh, poster, had posted a picture of uh, I think it was at Walmart. Uh, doing some, you know, rationing that you could have mm -hmm. one of a given product, which we saw quite a lot with various products early on in the pandemic. What what, what are you seeing there in terms of how widespread or, or how persistent are some of those hiccups uh, in terms of actually getting product to the retail space? I would I, I would like to say it's getting better, but I don't know that I believe that. I think we've become, I think, two things. I think the retailers are becoming much more attuned in how far out front they need to be ordering product, how well they need to be managing that inventory to keep product on that shelf. But, and, and, and I think consumers are becoming more adjusted to the fact that, Hey, I'm going to go to that store and there are going to be items that I can't get exactly what I want. So what are my trade-offs? I think we're just all getting more practice at this. Yeah, it's a good point too, is that, that, you know, what, what we've learned to live with or what we've figured out how to, to tolerate, what's the timeline where you think some of these disruptions that have 
sort of become endemic to the pandemic will become more of a thing of the past. You know, when you, you were saying earlier, you're thinking, I'd like to say it's getting better, but not sure we believe <laughs> it yet. When do you think it really will be better? Are we another year yet where we're seeing, and of course, you know, some of these hinge on things like, uh, we'll go back to the port container situation, which, you know, who knows when that will be resolved yet, but how long do you think it will be where we'll still be in this fits and starts and hiccups and fits, warts and freckles type of supply chain? Boy, the honest, the honest answer I'd have to give on that one is I don't know. Uh, I, I would certainly like to take the, the glass half full view on that one and think if, as we get the, the Omicron variant behind us, we, we've seen the flurry of, of remote mask mandates just in the last week or two. I, I want to think that things could normalize rather quickly. The realist in me, Andy, suggests it's going to be a year from now before we really start to even talk about normalization. The interesting part about that is it, it feels like, as you and I have, have been out and about, I mentioned we were both at the NCBA meeting. Um, you know, I took uh, I took the stunning Mrs. Vance out for dinner on Valentine's Day. Uh, you know, in some spaces it feels relatively normal. And, and by that, I mean, you know, we're out to dinner at a nice restaurant in Columbus, Ohio on Valentine's day and the place is packed. You couldn't get yep. a reservation. Yep. So that, that was very, you know, normal setting aside the people wearing masks in and out of the building. When we were in Houston for NCBA, I didn't see a mask other than when I was in the Uber from the airport to the convention center. <laughs> so, you know, that part felt relatively normal. That was a relatively normal convention trip, you know. It's refreshing, isn't it? Well, well, what, what I find interesting is that you have these pockets of normal and, and yet, you know, we have these kind of lingering effects. Some of them, um, you know, are not necessarily in our control. Like some of these supply chain issues we're talking about, and some of them I think are more, systemic like the labor issues right that the, the covid exacerbated the labor issues in other words but i think the underlying issues were there yes anyway you know yes. we were still going to have a lot of people retiring or yes you know considering hey i'm we, the the boomer generation coming out of the workforce is not that's not a surprise to anyone so in many ways i, I guess what i'm asking or if i'm trying to ramble this into a question for you don <laughs> is uh, have we used, has COVID been a catalyst to expose a lot of underlying issues in our supply chains and, or have we used COVID to scapegoat a lot of issues that maybe we weren't well prepared for, but we were going to have to deal with anyway, at some point. I think there was a whole lot of things that we were able to keep swept under the rug and the, and the labor, we knew we had labor shortages in, in the processing plants well in front of COVID. And, and it was just the, the that crisis that brought it fully to light um you know while it's it's outside of my area of expertise but i would say that the the chip shortage that we have seen so many complications from i can't help but think that somebody knew that was a risk before this all happened the to to try to answer your question the other is is where there are mass mandates where there are not mass mandates and i you know i i'm not going to try to tell anybody do what's comfortable for you, but I just there's so much hypocrisy in this whole thing, and I, I think the the, the real cure for this as as we rapidly approach this midterm election cycle, um, voters get the opportunity to express their frustration at the ballot box. I I think that by itself will bring on a lot of normalization. 
My thanks to Don Close of Rombo Bank for his insights into the beef supply chain and into the cattle markets. You can read more about what's happening in the marketplace by subscribing to the Feedstuff's daily e-newsletter. And you can join us weekday afternoons at 2 Eastern, 1 Central for Feedstuff's 365, our live stream channel where we talk with newsmakers and industry experts like Don about what's happening in the animal protein industries. And topics from what's happening in Washington to supply chain issues to health and nutrition, anything you've come to expect in the pages of Feedstuff's, you can now find live weekday afternoons, 2 Eastern, 1 Central at Feedstuff's365.com. Today's episode of Feedstuffs in Focus was sponsored by Novus International Incorporated, a leader in poultry, dairy, and swine nutrition solutions driven by science. Novus's products and services look at the whole animal, focusing on productivity and well-being in order to feed the world affordable and wholesome food. For more information, visit the Novus website at novusint.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs in Focus. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts. Or you can always check back at our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.